Welcome to the Founders Keepers podcast, interviews exploring stories behind the founders of change-making businesses in medtech, biotech, and health tech, and what makes those founders tick. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Hatton, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Bill Capp, the CEO and co-founder of Fountain Life. Fountain Life claims to be a provider of healthcare services intended to provide predictive, preventative, personalized, and data-driven healthcare to patients. The company's portfolio leverages science and technologies globally in order to provide effective and affordable treatments in order to enhance the health span, performance, and vitality of its users, enabling patients to get access to personalized healthcare, but in a simplified way. Bill is a board-certified surgeon, aircraft pilot, and serial entrepreneur who has built multiple businesses, including Fountain Life, and nine landmark hospitals to date. In this episode, we cover scarcity mentalities in business innovation, the reasons behind him hiring multiple aircraft pilots for his team, and why ChatGPT is just not good for healthcare. Let's get started. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Delighted to have you here. I would love to understand in your own words, can you tell me your background, your story that's essentially led you to where you are now with Fountain Life? Yes, well, a pleasure, uh, Grace, and I appreciate the opportunity to join you. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a convoluted journey. I uh, train very traditionally, as most uh, physicians do. I uh, have a background in molecular genetics, and then from there went on to medical school. And uh, beyond past that, went on to orthopedic training and fellowship. And uh, during the entire time, I was always very captivated with technologies and, and how technologies could potentially transform healthcare. So I started uh, into a private practice uh, and uh, quickly grew that private practice from about four practitioners to about 10. And then we built outline, outline clinics and uh, imaging centers and some surgery centers. And in the process, I got very interested in the high, how did the hospitals work? Because uh, my goal ultimately was to figure out the entire healthcare system, not just from a provider perspective, but also uh, from a physician perspective, but also from overall how the rest of the providers uh, function in the ecosystem. But all the time uh, I was doing this, I was trying to always bring new innovations into healthcare uh, because I kept thinking that, you know, ultimately, if we could just deliver the care model more efficiently, we would lower costs and improve outcomes. And uh, lo and behold, you know, we built an electronic health record. Uh, you know, we designed and developed critical care hospitals using advanced technologies, uh, you know, always working to improve the patient outcome and experience. However, about four or five years ago, I finally was at a meeting uh, sponsored by uh, Peter Diamandis uh, and Daniel Kraft, who's our uh, chairman of our advisory committee. Uh, it was called Exponential Medicine. And at that meeting, I was introduced to this world of exponential technologies that were starting to impact healthcare for the very first time. Uh, you know, we everything from uh, advanced genomics to robotics to uh, artificial intelligence, uh, advanced clinical biomarkers, new imaging uh, uh, modalities that are powered by AI. And what it became very, very clear is that uh, our healthcare system won't ever be fixed unless we start looking at root cause analysis. And so uh, the the very basis of Fountain Life is to, to change the discussion around healthcare, meaning we know that uh, the history of medicine, we've done an amazing job in terms of the first 200 years of medicine. You know, 200 years ago, we had very little modalities to treat people, but we certainly had public health measures. And so the first things, uh, you know, clean water, you know, let's get the rats out of the sewers, let's get clean, you know, clean up food supply, wash your hands. Basic public health measures made an immense difference in people's lives. And then the discovery of ad, uh, antibiotics and obviously vaccines to tackle a lot of the known illness at the time. Uh, and that's really been in a span of about a lifetime. So what is now transitioned is while we've doubled life expectancy in the last 200 years, what we haven't done 
is uh, address the really the elephant in the room, which is that most, if not all, of the disease processes, I would say 80% of the disease processes that we treat today are chronic conditions, which by definition are not symptomatic until late stage. And uh, yet our entire healthcare system is, be- is built on treating symptomatic disease, meaning that we're told from the time we're small, don't go to the doctor unless you're really sick. We're told from the time that we have a, a scarcity mentality in healthcare because we wait until the, the symptoms tend to be, uh, you know, manifest. And by the time, you know, whether they be cardiac symptoms or, or diabetic symptoms, by the time that happens, they're relatively late stage and they're a lot more expensive to treat. So it became very clear with my background in aviation as well, that if we don't start finding technologies that can detect disease at its earliest stage while you're still, quote, asymptomatic, and to be able to reverse that, uh, then we probably are not going to be able to impact the healthcare system. So four years ago, I, I heard this uh, from the stage uh, and uh, with my background in healthcare and also uh, delivery mechanisms, I partnered uh, with Peter Diamandis and Tony Robbins and Bob Hariri to form Fountain Life. And our, our focus is to create a paradigm shift in healthcare, meaning use advanced technologies, uh, meaning the technologies that are currently in the laboratory or currently just recently approved by regulatory bodies, and accelerate them into the advanced disease detection protocols. So that inside of a fountain, our fountain life ecosystem, hopefully uh, eventually further, to then detect disease at its earliest stage and reverse it or treat it or cure it at its earliest stages. And by doing that, just looking at our first thousand clients that have gone through Fountain Life, we can show you definitive evidence and studies we've done where we can show you that by detecting things early versus when they're normally found, we lower the cost of healthcare in the cohort by about 76%. So it's enormous dollars that are being spent, uh, and especially in the United States where we spend close to 20% of our gross domestic product on healthcare. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's a problem uh, in the U.S., it's a problem worldwide, but also the outcomes have not been good in the United States, uh, certainly not for what we're investing. Wonderful. So tell me more about the structure of Fountain Life. Who is it predominantly targeted at? Who do you engage with? And how have you scaled the business so far? Yeah, so we originally started uh, with uh, centers. We have four centers. We have one in uh, New York. We have one in Naples, Florida. We have one in Orlando, Florida, one in Dallas, uh, Texas. And we'll be scaling further. Uh, the the uh, our, our initial plan was to look at uh, kind of a B2C market and using you know the power of marketing and, and certainly the imprimatur of Tony uh, Robbins and Peter Diamandis and, and others in the ecosystem to kind of find that high-end client that wants to go through our advanced diagnostic screening and, and optimization therapies. But what it became very clear is that in, in one of our goals, and Peter talks about this constantly, is this idea of how do you democratize access to this technology? Because while uh, what we do at our centers is great, it's only great for people who can afford it. And our goal ultimately is not to just create a product for those that can afford it. Our goal is to democratize it. So in the United States particularly, there actually is an uh, inordinate amount of dollars that are spent. We spent four and a half trillion dollars in the United States on healthcare. It's more than the entire uh, GDP of Germany. And so when you look at 20% of GDP and four and a half trillion dollars, it turns out that inside the healthcare insurance premium there is a lot of administrative improvement that can be made, lowering cost and then repurposing those dollars. And so uh, what we did is we started a fountain health insurance company uh, that allows us, number one, to control the first dollar spend, but more importantly, to reinsert the providers to provide well care, if you will, or this preventive uh, precision diagnostic platform that we've developed. And what we do is we use a subset of the testing that we use inside our fountain life centers and we make it a benefit inside the health insurance company. So 
where we started to scale initially, while we thought we would be largely targeting people who could only afford our product, it became quickly apparent in the last year or two that we needed to launch a health insurance product that could democratize access to these technologies. And so uh, when we launched Fountain Health Insurance, and we, and we just literally launched about eight months ago, we had about 5,000 covered lives and growing rel- relatively rapidly. But the goal here is once again to democratize access to these emerging uh, precision medicine technologies into the insurance space so that you, even if you can't afford to go to a Fountain Life Center, you can still access the core of what we do at a Fountain Life Center through a health insurance product. And so that's what how we've started to scale. Uh, and then we beyond that, now we've been approached by mixed-use developments, high-end residential mixed-use developments that want to embed healthcare inside their ecosystem. So, you know, uh, what, what is interesting about all of it is that what we realized is that, you know, there is a, a worldwide spend outside of traditional healthcare, if you want to look at, quote, wellness, of about $4.4 trillion. So people are accessing different parts of healthcare or different types of healthcare without necessarily going through their insurance product or a government-based health system. So we uh, believe that the dollars are out there if we can make a compelling argument for where the value proposition is. And is it those elements of your business that you would say differentiate you from your competitors? Is it is it that strong message of trying to democratize access um, to the project you have, setting up this insurance arm, or are there other elements as well that you also believe put you in a, a stronger footing in what is essentially a very competitive market? Yeah, so I think I think that those two messages uh, that you know, look, there there's an alternative way, meaning that we can lower healthcare costs if we can get in front of the problems before they start. Uh, is, is certainly a differentiating message because currently in the United States, most of the health insurance plans uh, don't provoke, don't function on prevention. Uh, you know, we spend right now in the U.S. about three percent of our healthcare dollar on prevention. We spend about ninety-seven percent on a, what I call after the fact, or what some people would call sick care medicine. Meaning, once you've become symptomatic, developed a relatively late stage disease, then we start to attack it, whether that be diabetes or dementia or heart disease or cancer. The trick is to be able to move the technology forward in a much more rapid fashion and to create the adoption curve. So we see, we think that's certainly a differentiator. But ultimately, our, our ultimate long-term goal is that we're really a data company because nobody has really collected at scale large amounts of data, uh, fully quantified data on asymptomatic individuals because we're not taught that in medicine. You know, whereas you know, you know, when you go through your uh, diagnostic training, you're taught differential diagnoses, and those differential diagnoses are based on symptoms. And when you query a patient to come, arrive at a diagnosis, uh, it's based on symptoms. And yet, the reality is the technologies now exist to, to diagnose a large number of these things from imaging modalities uh, and from blood biomarkers while they're still relatively asymptomatic. And so the goal here, once again, is to democratize access. So what is interesting is our database is such that because if if you're in a homeostatic pattern and you're asymptomatic, your blood biomarkers, your proteomics, your transcriptomics, all of those are in a, a relative state of homeostasis, meaning that you know it's it's a quiet period inside your body. What we're trying to do is identify those biomarkers that have that are highly indicative of disease process, validated by imaging studies, genomics, and also for, uh, other advanced diagnostics, and so. The point being is that ultimately we'll be a data company because we believe this data ultimately will flow back to your digital twin. And we're currently working on this concept where you have a digital twin, meaning that on a day-to-day basis, you can consult you know, a portable solution on your phone that looks at you know, sleep patterns, uh, you know, uh, dietary patterns, you know, uh, environment, 
And then in addition to that, all your wearable data, in addition to that, all of your uh, diagnostic data, and then give you a roadmap with a constant feedback loop on how you can improve your health. So, so we believe that ultimately it's a digital solution. We also believe that ultimately the four walls of the doctor's office will dematerialize to the four walls of your home with technology. And we kind of got a glimpse of this during COVID because, you know, everybody switched to telemedicine during COVID. And in the United States, you know, the vast majority of the population was on telemedicine. And uh, it was very interesting when you look demographically at who liked telemedicine and who didn't, as you might imagine, those who were digital natives loved te- telemedicine. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my, my kids who are all uh, you know, gen- uh, millennials, they loved it. Uh, the people who didn't necessarily appreciate it uh, necessarily were our older, you know, patients because they just weren't facile with the technology. And yet when you realize that uh, almost every other aspect of a millennial's life is carried out through their phone, they don't understand why they can't get access to their healthcare on their phone. So we believe a digital solution long-term will be the answer, but we believe you also have to have the right data set to, to have AI uh, be able to analyze and to be able to do training algorithms on. So one of the problems in healthcare today is that when we go to mine for the AI algorithms, we're at the hospital or we're using hospital data or we're using physician clinical data. And the problem is a lot of those are already at the end stage because by definition, People don't go to the doctor unless they're symptomatic. So how do we screen a large group of asymptomatic individuals to detect disease? And where this became very apparent was we know that 70% of people who have a heart attack don't have a symptom prior to having a heart attack. They never have a single symptom prior to having a heart attack. And this is a work done out of Cornell from Dr. James Men's lab. Uh, and uh, and uh, you know, he runs a company called Clearly, which we utilize that technology. Uh, you all in the UK have a, a very similar technology uh, that has been developed at Oxford called Carry Heart. And I know that's being used in the NHS right now. So the idea of you know screening asymptomatic people is really where we need to go. But especially when you look at not only the heart attack risk, but we know that 70% of people that die from a cancer today die from a cancer that we don't have a screening test for. So once again, you know we can understand why the insurance system doesn't work, because by the time we get to catastrophic disease, which is had no antecedent, and, and currently in insurance in the U.S. market, 60% of catastrophic uh, claims are had no significant spend the year before, meaning they were relatively asymptomatic. And so, and we all know this, right? So we all know somebody who went to the doctor and had a great physical exam and were told they had a clean bill of health, and three months later, they have a heart attack. Or somebody who you know, said they went to the doctor three months earlier, and they were told they were fine, and then they were diagnosed suddenly with stage four cancer or stage three cancer. So the point is, we don't use the tools that we have right now very effectively to screen people at at, at, uh, at scale. And so what we want to do is create this data set that allows us to start to do that. And we also know the cost of the technology will come down. We, we are very big proponents of whole body MRI. With the AI algorithms, the false positive rate's very low now. It's just um, it's a question of you know access and then you know and then also what is the data sets that will emerge because we're in this exponential age, what are the diagnostics that will emerge to give us the same clear picture that we can with a very expensive evaluation versus maybe a tube of blood in the future. Focusing on you as a business founder, you've sort of touched a little bit upon it, but I'm keen to dig into more. What challenges have you encountered as a founder? Is that in fundraising? Is it in scaling? Is it in pivoting from a medical field to a more business focused one? Where where are the sort of pain points for you there? So, you know, I, I, and you would appreciate this as a physician, you know, you're, you're used to being in a field uh, where you have control over a lot more uh, on a day-to-day basis in terms of at least your practice, you have some control over that. Uh, but I think uh, the, the biggest challenges to scaling a business are finding talent and, and excellent talent at that. And I think um, 
understanding uh, that when the organization understands what the overall goal is and then being able to recruit that talent to the goal specifically has been, uh, you know, it's always a challenge. However, uh, you know, mission tends to trump uh, a lot of things. And as long as the mission is big enough and the purpose is big enough, we tend to attract people we like. Uh, fundraising has been, uh, has been, you know, extraordinarily, uh, I wouldn't say easy, but I would say uh, it's extraordinarily facilitated by you know, our mission, number one, number two, we have immense benefactors that are very interested in changing the world of healthcare. And what we're really trying to do ultimately is, you know, it's it's really, I, I tell people all the time, sometimes it's really, you have to think about it as a longevity play or a health span play, because if we can diagnose and detect disease at its earliest stages and reverse it or cure it or treat it, then we're in a position where you can intersect the technologies that will be coming out in the next 10 to 20 years uh, that will allow you to extend a healthy human lifespan even further. Because the estimates are right now in the next three to five years, we'll have more healthcare innovations than we've had in the last 100. And we're on an exponential curve for that. So I would tell you that's that's a challenge. Um, uh, good people are always hard to find uh, and great people are even harder to find. Uh, but when you find talent, I think uh, it's it's uh, it makes your job a lot easier as a healthcare entrepreneur. I think uh, as a physician, you have to learn to uh, trust but verify and, and grow an organization uh, and empower people to do their jobs, but yet understand that, you know, it ultimately it rolls up to you to make sure they're doing the job properly and they understand that they're aligned on mission. I want to pick up on something you mentioned uh, just very briefly earlier, that you have a background in aviation. Um, and that intrigued me particularly because um, there must be an incredible overlap there in terms of the safety measures, in terms of the rigor that you'd need to be in aviation as well as a physician. And I wonder if there are any particular lessons that you've taken from that background and applied to your work now as an entrepreneur. Um, you, you clearly have a very rigorous mindset, but I just wonder how else that has perhaps benefited you. Yeah, well, it's a great question, and it's interesting because uh, we have a lot of pilots in the organization. Uh, you know, I was an Air Force flight surgeon. Uh, I also have been a, uh, in aviation and been flying for over 30 years. Uh, uh, Tony Robbins is a pilot. Peter Diamandis is a pilot. Bob Ruri is a pilot. We have, we have all, all kinds of pilots around the organization. But I think the, the, where the opportunity and the similarities uh, and overlap in the fields are, if you look at uh, – Private aviation, I would say even commercial aviation, back in the 50s when the jet aircraft was first, first making its debut, there were a lot of crashes. There were a lot of failures, uh, obviously, with massive losses of life. And uh, the aviation industry kind of went back to first principles thinking in terms of let's create the technology and let's create the protocols and procedures to detect problems before they occur. And today, nobody thinks twice about getting on a transatlantic flight and flying from the UK to the United States. Uh, it's not... Uh, you, you don't think about your safety when you get on the aircraft. Uh, for most people, uh, they assume it's just a, a free, it's a given. And quite frankly, even for the pilots who are in the front of the aircraft, I mean, they really don't hand fly the aircraft anymore. It's actually done by the computers. And they're there as a redundancy or a redundancy in the loop and also in a monitoring system. But what they've been able to do is take aviation from something that's relatively unsafe to something that's extremely safe. And so what do we pay pilots for? We pay pilots to get you to your destination safely. And we train them for emergencies. And, you know, our hope is over time with the new advent of the new technologies that physicians' roles will change, right, particularly for primary care. We should have our doctors trained for the emergencies, but ultimately paid or at least, you know, significantly compensated for keeping you healthy. And I think in order to do that, we have to give our doctors better tools and we have to provide better information to our patients. It's got to, it cannot be just a once a year physical exam as a spot check. Uh, because in the United States, only 40% of people even go for a physical exam. And yet we could argue 
the validity of the current physical exam because it was based 200 years ago using tools from 200 years ago. So the point is we don't use the latest technologies to detect disease early. And I think the similarities inside of aviation and medicine are very, very similar in that if we adopt technology, if we adopt procedures and, and policies like they do in the aviation industry, we would lower our accident rate or our false, or I would say our adverse outcome rate in medicine tremendously. And we've started to see this, obviously, in the operating room. You know, we have checklists now and things of this nature that pilots have been using for, for you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if not longer. But we don't necessarily have it across the entire system. So in the United States, you know, being in the hospital is not the safest place to be all the time. Uh, you know, there's there are errors inside the hospital and, and you know, there, there are a lot of errors. And unfortunately, some of those are fatal. And a lot of that is process improvement that needs to occur. But there is also some institutional inertia that you have to overcome in order to make that happen. And so while we, we believe, obviously, we need a robust health system, um, we believe ultimately the goal for the physician should be to try to keep you out of the system as long as possible. And if that's the, if that is what we're able to do, then I think, uh, you know, uh, and, and access the system when you absolutely have to, but a patient who is fully quantified with feedback loops where they know what the status of their health is at any given time is much more engaged with their health. And it's not outsourced necessarily to a third party, which is kind of what we do today. We rely on our doctors and, and look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm obviously a physician advocate, um, practiced for a long time. My uh, wife is a, a pediatric eye surgeon. My daughter is a chief general surgery resident. So I, I'm a very pro physician, but we need to give our doctors better tools ultimately. Well, speaking of the range of sort of innovations that you're excited about, are there any other particular nascent technologies emerging in healthcare that you're particularly sort of, um, well, I guess, excited about other than the ones you've mentioned? Uh, we have we see them on a continual basis. I think the most amazing thing we'll see, and of course, there's a lot of rage around ChatGPT three and ChatGPT, and a lot of people uh, these large language models are, are really fascinating. Uh, you know, they're, they're not very good for healthcare, <laughs> just in generally not not in terms of the uh, the survival of healthcare. But the problem is that ChatGPT is not a physician, uh, and uh, it's been trained on a limited data set, and not of that or a large data set, not of which all the data has been validated. So. The trick ultimately long term will be to tag the data that's relevant, and that's going to require physician input in order to train better models. We don't believe that uh, AI is going to replace your doctor, but we do believe your doctor who's not using AI will be replaced. And so when we look at the technologies, I think are going to be hugely impactful. Obviously, gener uh, this generative AI will make the doctor's life a lot easier long term. Uh, in addition to that, I think... Um, other things that we see are advanced AI algorithms for imaging. We're seeing amazing new technology coming down on reading, uh, you know, MR and CCTA. And so if you, if you think about the carnary CT angiography that we've been doing now for 30, 40 years, with these new AI overlays that are provided either by Clearly here in the United States or over in the UK with Kerry Hart uh, from Caristo, it allows us now to get data that otherwise we never had before. So the, the, the point of being able to pick up that, that you know, vulnerable plaque in a cardiac patient or to be able to pick up the stage one, stage zero cancer. And what we're also fascinated by is that even though we use the Grail test here in the United States extensively for uh, using uh, uh, molecular fingerprints, you know, DNA fingerprints for tumors, uh, the new technology coming with mRNA-based uh, uh, tumor markers is amazing. Uh, the new regenerative medicine technology that's coming using validated stem cell technologies under IRB and FDA-approved tri trials here in the U.S., early preclinical data showing amazing results at, at curing a moderate and, and, and severe Crohn's disease, uh, you know, certainly all other types of inflammatory bowel conditions. And then in addition to that, 
we believe there's going to be uh, some major inroads that we're seeing currently on the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and uh, looking more carefully at the blood flow patterns of the C- or I should say the flow uh, fluid fat patterns in the CSF because it's very clear that that's been disrupted during Alzheimer's and I'm not so sure beta amyloid is going to be the ultimate answer for uh, Alzheimer's. I think we're probably looking the data coming out of the Buck Institute and the Gladstone Institute currently are showing that it's probably impaired blood brain barrier. Uh, and so how do we, how do we address that? And so there, what I tell you is we, we have a um, clinical advisory board uh, that's led by Daniel Kraft and Mark Hyman. Uh, and then also on that board are uh, Dr. Helen Messier, Dr. Rakesh Suri. And then we also have uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Eric Verdin from the Buck Institute. And we have a very unique uh, vantage point where we can see technology around the world uh, before it's available quote, for prime time. And we have an opportunity to evaluate that. So what we're seeing right now, I can tell you, since we started Fountain two years ago, uh, the technology has moved dramatically. And I think over the next five years, we'll move even more dramatically so that it won't be a question of can we treat the, identify and treat these conditions early it's a question of where will the resources come to be able to do it at scale. And I think that there is ample revenue, in, at least in the U.S. system, to start that process. Uh, but ultimately, the goal here is to make you CEO of your own health, meaning that you have all the tools uh, in a easy-to-understand manner uh, and that, that will give you the tools to, to be able to guide your health. And I think for physicians, understanding that the knowledge explosion has been so immense in the last 30 years I mean, we, we currently estimate that there are about two medical articles that are published every minute in the, in, across the world. So for the average primary care physician, that means they would have to read for 26 hours a day just to be, quote, caught up. But not all of those articles are validated in terms of statistical accuracy. So the AIs now, and we've talked with a company called Open Evidence. It's a not-for-profit. It's a fascinating company uh, that uh, was started out of Harvard. And what's interesting about that is that it reads the world's literature and then it, and analyzes every article for statistical validity and, and different levels of, of, of data, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, accuracy. So what's interesting is that now you don't necessarily have to wait for it to filter through your academy, filter through you know, uh, to finally find its way to a journal near you. I think the point is that you could actually have access to the latest technology and be able to filter it. So those are the tools that I think will make doctors much, much better. It also will empower patients because they'll have access to the same data. So it should be uh, should be a, a, actually a positive overall. And so, so many sort of nuggets of knowledge there, but I think the, the incredibly pertinent quote that you came out with there is something I will definitely take away, which is AI won't replace your doctor, but your doctor not using AI will be replaced. Um, and I sort of felt that that was very much, very much true. Um, sort of focusing more on fountain life then, what is in the pipeline for the next 12, 24 months? What can we expect to see from you? So, uh, you know, we certainly have had a lot of interest around the world to bring Fountain Life facilities into different markets. Uh, currently, we're focusing largely on the United States, but we've had discussions uh, in the UK. We've had discussions in the Middle East, and also uh, we have a partner in India as well. So I think, you know, going forward, we'll continue to look at our international expansion. Uh, where we're really getting tremendous traction right now is actually in residential communities that want healthcare embedded in their community. Uh, and we think that that will accelerate the move of healthcare to the home and also continue to allow us to gather more and more data. So we'll continue to build our Fountain Life Centers uh, over the next 24 months, largely focusing here in the United States and with occasional opportunities overseas. And then really it's the health insurance and the data play. Those are the two big areas that we'll be moving into. So 
Our goal this year is to enroll between 25 and 50,000 people on our health insurance platform. And then beyond that, uh, you know, continue to partner with others that want to adopt this type of modality. You know, um, one of the goals of Fountain and the reason we started the company was to transform what we think is relatively inefficient and a broken system right now. And so, so in order to do that, you know, um, very similar to, you know, Elon Musk never thought he would make every electric car, never wanted to make every electric car. He just wanted everybody else to make one. And so the reality is that over 20 years, that's actually come to fruition now where everyone is kind of looking at electric cars as primary conveyance. I think for us in Fountain, what we want to see is the model switch to using advanced technologies, uh, shortening the clinical latency gap, which you're familiar with, because, I mean, the 17-year cycle from the time things are ready to the times doctors widely will use them in practice is just too long, considering that the iPhone is only 13 or 14 years old. Uh, you know, we've got to get better at accelerating, inform- accelerating technology that has impact. And then secondarily, I think, um, uh, you know, moving toward this idea of democratization. I think, um, you know, w- the world right now, we're, we're facing... Uh, an increasingly uh, aging population worldwide. I mean, uh, the United States, our birth rate is negative. It's been negative in Europe for quite some time. It's certainly been negative in Japan for a long time. China's facing negative birth rates. Uh, everybody's expect, expecting or is, is facing uh, a burgeoning uh, older elderly population, and yet we're not doing anything to optimize their health. You know, we, we tend to take uh, people as they decline and they, most people in the United States spend the last 10 to 15% of their life in decline, meaning from minimal uh, you know, assisted living all the way to skilled nursing. And the problem is the technology today will tell you, and, and Dr. Eric Verdin will tell you specifically, uh, their, their data out of the Buck Institute is that there's no physiologic reason that somebody cannot live to age 98 healthy and, and robust. And so the point being is that we're not as physicians trained to do that. We're trained to manage a chronic disease, but not optimize people's health. And so I think the goal here ultimately will be to continue to purvey this message that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go quietly into the night into the nursing home. Uh, the goal here is to have you be robust and living at home for as long as possible and decrease that last bit of morbidity or, uh, you know, or that people experience at the end of their life, not have a 10 year or 10% of their life being in decline, but maybe the last three months of your life. And then hopefully, you know, uh, for, for those of us who are young enough and or those of us that make the next 10 to 15 years, start to access this new technology that's being developed to extend the healthy human lifespan even further. Because people think that just because the population gets older, that that's necessarily a bad thing because of utilization of resources. But the reality is Dr. Davis Sinclair at Harvard has already shown with a group of researchers at Harvard that for every one year of additional longevity in the world today, it's an economic impact of about $32 trillion. Now, how they arose at that, I I would have to go back and look. But I think the the point being is that, uh, you know, today, uh, you know, our goal is to make 100 of the new 60. And I think the reality is the technology is there today, but that's not necessarily the message that the medical community has received through training. So our goal ultimately, and, and our partnership that we have with University of Central Florida to hopefully train the next generation of physicians on some of this new advanced technology. Well, it's clearly a topic, an area, an industry that you are incredibly passionate about. Do you feel it's that passion that has been the biggest contributor to your success, or is it something else? Oh, I think I'm a, I think I'm an echo chamber for a lot of people around me. <laughs> to be honest with you, I think we've got we've got great people that work with us. And and look, I mean, quite frankly, we could not have better leaders uh, than uh, Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis and uh, and Bob Reary. All have been who have been in this space for a long time, and, and nobody has probably 
exemplified health and longevity better than Tony, uh, everything from mental health to physical health. I mean, he's been a, an advocate for that for years. I think um, where we think the change will come in healthcare, we don't believe the change will come through the health systems that currently exist. We believe it's going to have to come through businesses and governments that are looking for alternatives because, uh, quite frankly, there's a lot of inertia built up inside the U.S. healthcare systems uh, that don't aren't really interested in change because uh, it, it it does going to disrupt the payment model to some extent. And so uh, change is always hard if, uh, it's, if it's disruptive. However, I also think we're at that point where we have to, to make this happen. And I think, um, you know, I feel I, I'm honored to just to be able to lead the organization. We have unbelievable number of passionate people that are, you know, uh, if not equally, if not more so driven than I am. So I, I, I think that it's a, it's a message whose time has come and, and hopefully we can continue to push it. And in the same vein of introspection, is there anything that you would do differently if you were to start all over again, other than revolutionize the healthcare industry as it currently stands? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think I don't think any of us start out. I, mean, I didn't wake up one morning, uh, you know, as a, as a burgeoning medical school student, think I was going to do this. I think, uh, you know, I think if I were, I mean, there's certainly obviously business missteps that you make. And, and you know, we, we talk about failing your way to success. But I think, you know, where I sit today, I mean, I'm largely in a position uh, to have a, a fundamental understanding of how the U.S. healthcare system works, uh, how the, uh, you know, from the physician perspective, from the you know hospital perspective, from the insurance perspective, it gives me a little bit of a unique uh, vantage point. But I think ultimately, you know, when we look at, you know, um, you know things that would, we would do differently, I don't think I would do, ever do anything different with my career. I love being a physician. I love being an orthopedic surgeon. I just uh, grew increasingly frustrated with the fact that the healthcare was so unbelievably expensive and it was causing half of currently the state right now is we've estimated 60 percent of bankruptcies in the united states are due to healthcare uh bills and so i think that in my mind uh given the the abundance of healthcare resources we have it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense so unfortunately uh it's a system we live in, so it has to be modified or we need a, an alternative delivery platform. So I, do, I would tell you that, um, you know, things that I would do differently, uh, you know, I might move faster <laughs> knowing what I know now and not, not be as apprehensive because, uh, but I, I think, you know, hindsight is is easy. I think uh, the, the trick is, you know, our goal with our company is to try to skate where the puck is going. That's uh, an old Gretzky analogy, but I, I do think that that's the key for us. What does a typical day look like for you in the business then, if a typical day exists, which I suspect it probably doesn't, but maybe a close enough approximation to understand what what it is that you would fit into a day? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a role of CEO, I, I'm, I'm for, I am uh, fortunate to lead a really group of talented individuals, but our days start very early in the morning, um, uh, not for time zone reasons, but I'd like to get up and exercise. So if I can get my exercise in and get my get to the gym early in the morning, it's the one time that I don't, I'm not fighting emails and, and, and calls all day. I think that helps to certainly set and ground my day. And then beyond that, um, I think, uh, we go, uh, to the office where, you know, we have a very robust, uh, uh, you know, a system inside the office for, you know, meetings and, uh, and, and uh, goal setting. Uh, we meet with our executive teams at least once a week, and then every team has, you know, their own meetings down throughout the organization. Most of my day is spent on calls, uh, some podcasts, uh, uh, certainly presenting, uh, preparing, preparing investor briefings. And, and in addition to that, you know, work, travel, quite a bit of travel. So uh, as you might imagine with a startup, we, we have a lot of opportunities to speak. And then in, in addition to that, meet key players around the world. Uh, so that, you know, this last year, I think we were in eight different countries, at least uh, once, if not more. Uh, and so the opportunity to, you know, spread the message. And I think 
uh, it's really the, the time constraint is the biggest issue in terms of travel. But I think Zoom has made a tremendous amount of difference in that. So, you know, we our days are, are not short. I, mean, I would tell you they're 12 to 14 hour days and uh, at least. And, uh, you know, we, we hire and we work on kind of a 24 seven schedule. Um, we, you know, we we're cognizant of time differences and making sure people get rest. And particularly, we, we do prioritize sleep inside the organization as, as a foundational principle of what we uh, what we are advocating as well. And Wayne Gretzky, Hockey Quotes aside, um, what other advice would you give to business founders? I just had to, I, that really touched me just because I saw the Maple Leafs play recently and that had been a bucket goal. That's right, yeah. a very long time. Yeah. Uh, so that really touched me just yeah. now and I picked up on that. But is there any other um, advice that you would give to people wanting to follow in your footsteps, perhaps from a healthcare background or otherwise lessons that you've learned that you haven't already shared so far? Yeah, I, look, I think I think it, the most difficult thing is to leave what you're comfortable doing and, and doing something new. Uh, but I also think there are times in your life that you have an opportunity to to make a transformational difference. Um, and in you know whether that be you know in your own personal life or, or you're certainly leading an organization, I actually think positions can make tremendous leaders. I think they're not always put in leadership positions, but I think they can make uh, you know tremendous leaders. I think positions need to be far more vocal. And how the system needs to change, and not just always be denigrating the current system, and then you know being a force for change. Sometimes it's difficult when there's a lot of bureaucracy, um, and I think ultimately you know it's, it's the same advice I give all of our team members. You know, uh, you really need to fo- you know follow your passion in terms of what is it, what is it, the impact that you want to do, uh, and or want to make, and then and how do you achieve that? And there certainly are lots of ways to. To get there, I think um, there are certainly, you know, people that talk about motivational. I mean, everybody thinks Tony, Tony Robbins is a motivational speaker, and he's really not. He's not a motivational speaker. I think he spends what he excels at is te- uh, teaching people to get out of their own way to some extent and also to learn how to take massive action. I think that um, for physicians particularly, we tend to be very traditionally trained and we tend to be very uh, circumspect and uh, risk is not necessarily in our DNA every single time. Uh, but I think if, if you have an idea and you're passionate about it, the trick is, number one, to, to be able to articulate that, uh, put it into a business plan, and then attract great people to help you achieve that. And I think if, you, if you're uh, passionate about it and your idea is important, uh, number one, the, the hardest thing to do sometimes for physicians to understand that you have to be willing to listen to what the market says the value of your good or service is worth. And then, you know, the question then becomes, you know, how do you create value inside the system? And when you can create value uh, with a purpose, I think uh, that's a great success opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Founders Keepers. And if you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review on whatever listening platform you are using. Be sure to tune in next time for another Founders Story.